Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to this episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. In this interview, I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Waldron. And I think you're going to find that there are a number of eclectic topics that we've covered. We covered lots of ground in this one. And in fact, I, as I was ending the podcast, I was feeling like, wow, we really just reach the tip of the iceberg here. There's so much under each of these different things that we've talked about. Everything from the ritual of art, doing something physical in order to enable the flow within us. We also talked about one of my favorite topics, which is speech and communication, really looking at what I call the truth system of health. In other words, what does our voice say about us? And what would we like it to say? So why don't you listen in and see how this nourishes your own truth. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. Today I have with me somebody who really does straddle two different disciplines that are very much interconnected, that of art and healing. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Waldron. So Jennifer, lovely to have you here with me on this podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me to speak with you today. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I am too, because I feel like so much is going to come out of this and so much that we don't even anticipate right now. (laughs) But I feel like Mm -hmm. whenever I'm talking with you and knowing what you're about, I, I feel like there's, there's so much depth. So I'm excited for this journey into that, that whole sphere. (laughs) That's right. So what I'd like to ask you, first and foremost, as I do with all of my guests, is what is your favorite color? My favorite color is Egyptian violet. Egyptian violet? Yes. Can you describe Egyptian violet for me a little bit? I can describe it for you. (laughs) It uh, It was a paint that my teacher suggested I buy, although it's very expensive. So I hesitated for a long time. Mm. And then... I bought the paint, and it is the most beautiful, authentic violet you have ever seen, and it's something that I use at the end of a painting. I will find places where it belongs, and then I'll just put it on, you know, mixed with a little white or maybe mixed with a little blue or something, and all I can say is it sings. You just stand back and Mm. go, that's it. There it is. We're done. And I, I love that color. Is it a, a rich violet? Is it something that has a very deep hue or is it a little bit lighter? It sounds like you're making it a bit lighter as you're using it in a painting. It, de- it depends. It mm-hmm. is, um, it's a really rich, it's a, it's a bright violet. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm talking here about an oil paint. It's a bright violet. So it feels, um, it, it just, it, it's a clean violet. I mm-hmm. guess that's what I want to say too. And it's just, be- it's a beautiful color. So when I think of violet, I often think of intuition. 
I think of the space of dreams and the subconscious. And again, that, that whole concept of depth. Do you feel connected to your intuition? Is that something that you would say that you have a pretty good handle on and that's what guides your life? I would say it guides my life a lot. Um, and more and more, I try to trust that intuition. And it's, it's the... It's the part of me where I do best when I pause and simply let something happen. And yes, I, I, that's true. The intuition is everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think for so many artists, it is their everything. It's really connected into that wellspring of creativity into mm-hmm. emotions and so there there's that bedrock there that allows us to flow mm-hmm. and so I, I see that for you I was just curious if you saw that for yourself yes but I'll tell you what's different also is that I'm also I uh, have this left brain part of me and so I'm finding more and more when I'm painting uh, that I do some some sketches first and sometimes I'll even add the color to them and I'll get like a, a, a map of where I want to go with a painting. And then when I'm in the studio, I have that kind of, for me, it's like a grounding. So then I can let my intuition flow, if that makes sense. Um, it feels like, okay, I've got my feet on the ground here. I know what it is I'm doing. Now let's, now let's go with the flowing part and see mm-hmm. what else can happen. Yes, I like that um, that general journey very very much. In fact, I was talking with somebody yesterday about how we so much need a structure. It's almost like the body. We need that skeleton in order to flesh things out and to have us contain all this water, which is very flowing and fluid. So it's almost like, yes, having that becomes our foundation. I'm kind of curious about your process into painting. And as you're describing it, I almost feel like I'm portaling into that arena of you in your room painting in your studio and what what do you go through when you decide to paint something kind of take us through that in within your mind within your brain left brain right brain however you want to tackle it but I'm kind of curious to get inside your mind in the artist sense oh okay uh, I'll do the best I can with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's changed over time, but so, so I'll, I'll tell you where I am right now. I'm doing a series for our Bainbridge Performing Arts Center, and the series is um, on food trucks and vintage trailers. So I am focusing on those images uh, to paint. So... I do a lot of doodling at night when I don't want to do anything else. So I doodle the images and then sometimes I'll take those images and I'll expand them a bit. I'll add to them and those become the foundation for the sketches. Um, right now I finished, uh, I, I've, I've got my doodles together and I've got my images together and I went into the studio the other day and I picked the canvases to put each of the image on. And then the next step is to mix the base paint. Um, usually I use a dark color um, and I will put the sketch on the, on the canvas. 
And then I put the darks in, and um, I very, they're very, very dark. Um, and this is for oil painting or acrylic. I'll put them in very dark. And then I step back and see if this composition looks okay, if this mm-hmm. is really going to work. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I simply put paint on the canvas. And sometimes I don't. Um, uh, I'll just start mixing mixing paints. I don't use the medium values for for quite a while. I put all the darks in. I make sure my images are clear, uh, and uh, then I basically fill the canvas with paint because I think you got to get the paint on there, and then you can start changing the colors if I want, or you know, see what what else is going on, and. All along, I always try to take a break at least every hour, um, and I go and get a cup of tea, maybe have an apple, and stay away, and then when I go back in, it's like a new painting. I see all sorts of things that need to be changed. So I don't know if that helps, but yeah. that's, oh, that's kind no, of that's, how I began. Yeah. That's wonderful, and, and it sounds like you've got some sense of structure and order to it, and you know, I think every artist... and one of the things that we mentioned before we we jumped on the podcast was that everybody is an artist. We we all carry that seed of creativity. You as an artist, do you have certain rituals that you bring into the canvas before you get to the canvas, during, as you were mentioning, with the, the pause of getting tea, even after you're done? Is there something that you find that you consistently do maybe before and after? Do you ever meditate? Do you ever listen to music? Do you, Are you wearing certain clothes? You know, I find for myself, I kind of have this thing going on where I am the most sloppy person when I'm painting. I, mm-hmm. I am just the opposite to you in terms of not having a method. And in fact, that is almost my ritual is to be really chaotic because I don't allow myself that chaos in other areas of my life. Not so willingly. So I'm kind of curious mm-hmm. about you and your process in that way. And if there is something that shows up more or less consistently, whether it's yeah, maybe something physical or maybe an emotional process, but something ritualistic for you. Uh, yes. And this has, uh, has some variation to it, but there definitely is. First of all, I heat the studio up. That's part of the ritual. (laughs) (laughs) And I do, like you, I have this almost the same clothes I wear all the time and an apron that I put on. And I now have in the studio a small tray. And on this tray is a candle. And I put on it um, some objects from nature that I found. Um, I kind of like things that are sort of old and decrepit. And so I found um, a bird skull that I put on there, and I have some old um, flowers that are, you know, they're 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 gone. Most people would put them in the garbage, but I put them there. I put sometimes I'll go out and find something in nature that I want to pick and bring in, and then um, I will light the candle, and it's on a. Sometimes I'll write something to put on the table, like. Um, uh, just do it, or uh, be free, or whatever the word is that feels good for me that day, and then I light the candle, and uh, that is sort of my beginning ceremony. Um, I also have 
lots of different kinds of music that I'll play. So that is an intuitive process. What do I need this morning? Do I need Jamie Sieber or do I need Prince? You know, where, where, do, I, where do I want my, my energy to, to go? And sometimes I just, mostly I have music, but I like it to be um, nothing that gets in the way. So, um, and then I often will, you know, do something physical. So I will dance or I will, when I'm outside, I'll walk fast or I'll take a walk before I go in the studio. And it's so incredibly precious, that time, that it feels like I, I, I want to spend some time in gratitude for just being able to do this thing that I do. And that is part of, of the ritual. And it means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And I really like what you said about doing something physical. Mm-hmm. It's almost like taking the physical and allowing your body to move in order for things to get moving within you. Do you, do you feel like that is part of it or is it just to kind of get the momentum going a little bit? No, I feel like it's part of getting all the energies moving and going and there's, there's a way in which I think you can get kind of um, scrunched up when you're painting if you don't keep stopping and moving and stopping and moving. Um, you know, it's because, I mean, the paint, the, the palette isn't that far from the canvas. And I, I, I just think it's important to step back and stretch and move around and, you know, put something on that makes you dance and keeps that aliveness and freshness going while, while I'm painting. Otherwise, it isn't any fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like those words you use, scrunched up. I'm almost seeing so many people at their desks, at their day jobs, you know, hunched shoulders. I mean, so much about our posture is really defining and says who we are based Absolutely. on those patterns, right? So I love that. I'm almost getting that image. Mm-hmm. You know, let's go back in time a little bit. I'm, I'm kind of curious how you even got into art, got into painting, got into singing. I mean, to me, you're a very artistic person and more than the, the way of putting paint on a canvas. So, so take us back a little bit. I mean, how did you, were you always feeling very connected into fine arts? What, what's your story a bit? Help us to, to understand how you got to be where you are. Well, Deanna, I, I have not always been connected to the fine arts by any means, but I remember art being like a part of my life, you know, whether it's coloring or singing or whatever. That was just encouraged in my family. But what really got me started in art was in graduate school writing my dissertation, and I Um, got a lead to do some pottery work at the uh, Seward Park Art Studio. And so I went down there once a week, and I worked on the wheel doing pottery. And I think it saved me. I think it was just, it was so invaluable. And I was so excited about working with clay. And then from there, I started doing um, things like pastels and doing watercolors, but I realized that in most art forms, if you don't know how to draw, you, you're kind of limited in terms of what you can do. So then I started taking some drawing classes. And all of this is while I'm teaching. Um, so these are 
Saturday events or, or maybe one evening a week I would go and take an art class. And um, it was just, it's always been energizing and uh, uh, just joyful. But to make a long story short, the other piece that was very significant for me was basket weaving. And I did that for four years in the School of Basketry in Seattle. And I absolutely loved it. That was a, a very difficult skill to learn to do. And it's really, really rewarding. And from basketry, I went back to clay and took um, classes from Tips Holland, sculpture, pottery, and more classes in doing just hand building with pottery. And when we first moved to the island, I went to hand building. But again, there was that need to learn to draw. And so I found a drawing teacher here on the island, and she turned out to be also a painter and had an opening in her studio, and I went, this is now about 10 years ago, and I went and learned um, how to paint from her so and, and draw as well. So this, this is really fairly recent in terms of my, my whole life, but it's... And would you say that if... Uh, gosh, you've tried a, a number of different things. Basketry. I, I didn't know that about you. And it seems, you know, lots of attention to detail. And then I, I look at, you know, work with clay and that feels a little bit more organic. Um, so it feels like a sprinkling of many different arts that you moved through in order to really, to, to really keep coming to the conclusion that you felt the need to draw that that was a, a piece mm -hmm. I do I keep saying that don't I but it's it has become that it's like that little it's that thing you've just got to know how to do I think mm -hmm. and more I have pe people that come to me and say can you teach me how to paint and I'll say sure but once we start they'll say well I want to make a dog or I want to paint this or that but there's no drawing skill there and it just becomes it becomes difficult and drawing is so much fun it's just mm. so much fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. To really recreate form yes. is, uh, you know, it's a wonderful use of creativity. Right. What about your teaching background, however? You know, you are a teacher. You've gone through advanced schooling. You know, was that really a passion of yours as well? But maybe on the left brain side, was that nourishing your left brain? Oh, it nourished both both sides. Uh, my field of study and teaching was in the field of speech communication. So I would, the, the basic courses, I was at Everett Community College, and the basic courses were public speaking and interpersonal communication. And then there was a great opportunities to teach um, group discussion, and I would teach readers theater and performance classes because that's what my background is in. So, um, and for me, generating um, new courses and new ideas, um, the, the act of teaching is a, really quite a creative act, especially in the classroom itself, because of most of my classes, I was leading discussions or we were trying to work from work, work together as opposed to doing a lot of lecturing. So the, uh, the, the act of creating a course or creating a uh, a study of some kind is is very very creative to me. Um, and when I left uh, the college teaching, I began to teach classes here 
on um, music and sound for healing and spirituality and classes in chanting um, and those, those kinds of things, using sacred sound, because that's where I had finally come to um, and studied. I, I had studied with Pat Moffat Cook at the Open Ear Center, and um, that was a profound change in my life. And it was at that point I knew that it was time to leave teaching and do something different. And I, and I just, I'm just going to add that at this, at the whole time I was at Everett, those 20 years, I was also coming home and working with people privately as a speech coach. So again, there's that creative act of listening to someone's voice, determining where, where, the, where the problem is and what's working for them vocally, and then trying to get them to see and hear that and finding ways for them to shift into something that's more authentic and more who they are and working with all all of their voice Mm, I love this whole terrain you know this is really the whole area of what I call the truth system Mm. so where the thyroid gland is the throat how we take things in and how we give things out through our mouths Uh, even within my whole detox program we talk about the power of words and affirmations So I feel like you're the perfect person to speak to this because this has been your way of life for decades. And so I'm kind of curious because it's such a rich area and you've done so much study and teaching. And I, by the way, I really like what you said. I wrote it down about teaching being a very creative act. I would entirely agree depending on how it's done. It's, it is really um, a doorway to opening up many different minds to that whole creative process and then seeing that merge together. So I'm kind of curious with, with all the, the artistry now and the, the fine arts, has there been a meld for you with speech and communication and voice, authenticity? How has that ribbon of your life made it into maybe your canvases or baskets or clay or any of the creative products that you've ventured into? Well, I think uh, it probably has in ways I haven't even recognized. I do love to paint mouths. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think I remember seeing some of your paintings. um, Yeah. That had that, yes. And then then with the clay, I loved working with the lips and forming, because I would do these little heads that you could put on posts and, you know, they would have, they'd be all about the the gesture of the mouth as well. Uh-huh. And I also, I mean, I have to admit, I talk to myself all the time in the studio. So I'm ha- in conversation with whatever's coming forward and we're having, we're having a dialogue, you know, it's, it really feels like there's other people in the room uh, when I'm working with a, a, you know, a trailer image and you've got a park here and you've got people and I'll say, well, what do you, what should this sign say? Or how are you doing today? Or your cigarette doesn't look very good. Let's get that a little bit clearer or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be that's going on in the image. Um, I probably shouldn't talk about cigarettes with you, should I? But there is this one, <laughs> no, it's, one woman. It's everyday on life for some t- people. It's it's fine. It's it's a slice of life. <laughs> There's this one woman sitting on this stoop smoking a cigarette. Well, so. let's take that example for a second because isn't it interesting how some people do have a fixation on 
mouth-based activities. You know, I've always marveled at the act of smoking. Why is it that there is such this fixation uh, outside of the nicotine, of course, but it seems like it goes beyond that because usually when people take that away, what do they do? They usually replace it with food and eating and that incessant activity around the mouth. So maybe you'd like to wax on uh, a little bit of what you've noticed about Perhaps the energy of the mouth, speaking activities of the mouth, eating, you know, anything that comes to your intuition, because I I think it's so interesting that you've been so consistent and really entrenched in this whole truth system for some time. I'm even looking at the picture of you right now. You're wearing that aquamarine kind of blue uh, that I see uh, here uh, of you on Skype. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, what I'd love to pick your brain on what you've observed about people, their personality, and their communication styles. Have you noticed, oh. have you looked into that pattern recognition, things that you find, whether it's steeped in trauma, the epigenetics of a, a family, family patterns around communication, people that don't speak up, right. or people that are excessively noisy and not really creating substantive sound? Right, right. Well, yes, over the years, I've certainly come up with some great generalities, and that's all, and that's what they are. These are, these are generalities, but when I work as a speech coach, one of the questions I ask people is, what, what were you told about your voice? What have you been told about your voice? What have you been told about communicating with others? How have you been assessed by others in terms of your abilities? And it's amazing what people will say. Um, And uh, even for a lot of women, especially, it's been they've been told to be quiet or to be nice, or if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Um, I've worked with women who come in with these gorgeous alto voices that are deep and big, and they say my voice is too big. Uh, People turn away; they don't want to listen to me. And so they want to work on quieting their voice down. And, of course, I want to do just the opposite with it. But it's, um, it's a very interesting. Um, I've worked with people who don't speak up. You can't hear them. And they don't speak up because of, I mean, there can be lots and lots of reasons. And um, it can be reasons of self-esteem. It can be... Um, it can be messages that they've been told uh, about uh, you don't have anything worthwhile saying, so just be quiet. It can be tremendous fear in uh, speaking up and being heard. Um, it's There is a lot of trauma around our voice. There's a lot of it. Uh, and it's I hear it all the time. I hear these young women who sound like they are 10 years old. Mm-hmm. and um, people who talk really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's all over. So I'm curious, because this is something that I've wrestled with throughout my life. I have a family that is <laughs> kind of a mixed bag when it comes to telling one's truth and using one's voice, everything from loud, booming, authoritarian voices to speaking perhaps without the greatest finesse, but blurting things out in all just blunt honesty. And I'm kind of curious, you know, where's the sweet spot there? Because 
I think when women, especially women, and I work with a lot of women through my programs, when they're told to speak up and speak up and, and tell your truth, be in your truth, be authentic, you know, I think that this can also backlash. I, I really do feel that there has to be a connection to the heart. If I think of the heart as the upper birth canal of the body, and the throat as that true canal of birthing out words, it almost feels like, how do we really find ourselves within compassionate truth-telling rather than speaking your truth and, you know, having that sense of, I'm just going to tell you how it is, you know, and perhaps there's a time and a place for that. Mm-hmm. But I think that sometimes when messages come out, especially, I think, in these days of a lot of self-help and a lot of personal growth that the messages might be a little bit skewed on that. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on speaking one's truth and certain ways to do that that would be beneficial in order to be heard. Well, you've said it, you've said a lot there and the first thing I want to respond to is the any way you look at it it's a judgment that you're giving the person. If you say to them uh, go ahead, speak out, be authentic, that's a judgment. And it just adds adds to what's already happening, is that feeling of being judged about not being enough, right? So here we go again, I'll just, I'll be quiet. And I think it's important to recognize why we sound like we do. What has happened? What, what, what's the path that we followed to have these vocal habits? that have been there for all of your life. And whenever a person changes that, if I suddenly become softer or louder or whatever it might be, my whole being is going to say, don't do that. So you really have to work through a resistance that's already built in. And I totally agree with you. It has to begin with the heart. It has to begin with, I say, quietness. Um, listening to one's breath because the ears and the voice are directly connected, becoming very familiar with how you do sound, with the beauty of your voice in its quiet, maybe in its whisper, maybe in its soft sound, maybe in singing a lullaby, to really appreciate what this instrument is that you have and how absolutely gorgeous it is. It's not something that is blast people away it's a way to engage people it's a way to to converse with people it's not about being shy and hiding and it's not about uh, pushing people away with your voice and that, that's what I mean it's it's um it's easy to tell people to speak up or easy to say whatever the judgment is but it's not easy at all to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not. No, it, it isn't. It definitely takes some practice yeah. because I think people are expecting uh, a repercussion from expressing themselves in a certain way, whether it's a punishment, it's anger, there's fear, mm-hmm. a lot of emotion. I think that that is oftentimes what is holding people back from really expressing right. how they feel. Right. I also use chanting a lot mm-hmm. to help people. Uh, come to appreciate their voice and see what the possibilities are. So to give a couple of simple chants and to be chanting with someone 
is a way to start opening the heart and the voice. Yes. Oh, I love it that you said that. You know, and there was this video circulating amongst uh, one of the communities that I I have together, and it was all about using music and uh, singing in order yes. to create better movements. So somebody with Parkinson's disease or somebody with neurological issues through the conduit of singing had mm. improved functionality. <laughs> and That's I think right. that something is happening in the brain. I do think that right and left hemispheres are maybe a little bit more synced up. You know, we know about that with binaural beats, yes. that connection of synchronization, Right. You know, and, and that's probably what many of us are lacking, where we feel very segmented and not so integrated and synthesized in our lives. Right, right. I think that's true. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, I want to wax on one more thing with you, and that is, in the absence of speech, looking at people's communication through words. So it's not a, a vocal expression of poetry, but maybe it's a written expression. And I'm looking at societal trends now around written expressions, that most of how people are communicating is no longer by phone. It mm -hmm. seems to be by text, by email, social media platforms. And it's so interesting to me because I get a little bit reactive about grammar and how we convey ourselves and really looking at the energy of words perhaps even more because that's all I have to go on now. And I, I would just love to hear you talk about your observations of how people are putting themselves out there through words, written words primarily. Right. It's, it's a new time, Deanna. <laughs> it sure is on many fronts, politically and otherwise. So I, I know that. <laughs> it's a new world, and um, uh, yeah, I I don't know what to say. It's um, I think the good news for me is that when I read someone's blog, um, I can kind of hear their voice if they're a good writer at transcribing their voice. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And That's the art of storytelling, right? That's the art of writing. So many people yes. aspire to do that. Right. And so you can, you can really hear it. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, I... <sighs> I, I know I don't I don't know what to say. I'm I'm speechless, so to speak. Um, I I miss hearing the voices. I I I like to call my friends as much as possible. Um, it's it it. Yeah. I, I mean, used to I don't know what to say. I mean, there I, I used to be a teacher of voice and diction. I mean, that's a joke now, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well. It's becoming it's, a lost art. It is becoming a lost art. True. Yes. True. And um, you I know, I've been told, uh, you know, and I don't have children, but for people that have teenagers or preteens, there is this thing now where they're not even connected to voicemail. They only do texts, so they actually have voicemail shut off, so that people can't leave messages and they don't have to listen. It's just all communication that's rapid fire and quick. And, you know, it's really about, mm -hmm. you know, these touch and go points that are very quick. And perhaps that is, I always feel that certain things are archetypal or symbolic. And that is a microcosm of what I believe is happening at the macrocosm level of our culture, which is 
everything is touch and go, touch and go. Social media is a river, a thread that we jump in at some point. We may comment. We may be part of that. We jump out. We come back. Everything is moving so fast. And I feel that that's where our communication is going. It has moved into fast, quick, short, expedient. And sometimes we miss things in, in that. That's absolutely true. And it, it feels to me, and I may be wrong here, like people are talking faster too. And it it's part of the speed. And it's, um, it, 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 I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. It, it feels that it, there's not the, the conversation, public conversation with people that used to be more prevalent. And I don't, I don't know. It's just changing. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe it someday, is. Maybe someday we won't have tongues or something if it keeps oh, up. <laughs> they'll become vestigial organs. Well, we right. still have to eat. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but maybe we won't. Uh, and it's interesting, again, that we have one mouth and two ears. And so back to the old adage of reminding ourselves that <laughs> listening is important, that whole context, that whole dialogue. and Right. Yeah, there's so many layers there of communication to really go into. So it's it's nice. It, we we toured around so many different topics here. I um, goodness, you know, going from your your paintings into your work with speech communication, talking about mouths through your art, <laughs> <laughs> and now looking at our society, I I, I really feel like we've uh, traversed through we many have. different areas. We have. We certainly so, have. Jennifer and you. In, in your spirit today, what, what do you find? Where, where are you with respect to healing, art, teaching? What would be some final imprints, some final statements to leave the listeners with? Well, I see the, a real integration between doing art, being creative, and as an act of healing for oneself and an offering for other people as well. So to me, a... A life is a life with creativity is a life worth living, uh, and it is it is so healing for all of us. Whether you're um, using sticks to make a little house on the ground or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a big deal. But it's really important to stay in that place where you really acknowledge your creative spirit and have fun that's the big thing just have fun mm. you know sometimes I feel like that's easier said than done for some people mm -hmm. including myself sometimes really mm -hmm. and truly but I, I really I wrote down the quote that you just said and I'd like to repeat it for everybody a life with creativity is a life worth living mm -hmm. I really do feel that creativity is a healing force and I wish that when we went to the doctor or our healthcare practitioner, that they asked us, how are you being creative? <laughs> I, I really feel as part of my, my personal journey that creativity was what helped me heal of many reproductive health issues. And I kind of feel like it goes together hand in hand with reproduction, fertility, acknowledging the physical creative force within us. So I really like it that you mentioned right. it and brought us back to center into what is healing you know it, healing used to be called the healing arts now we call it private practice yeah. we go to the doctor and it feels very buttoned up and 
<laughs> you know, not a lot has changed other than now the doctor is looking at the EMR. They're looking at the computer screen and not looking as much at us and communicating. The communication style has changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we all have that healing force within us. So, and I, I feel that that's what you're bringing to light with the work that you do. Yes. I just want to add one thing because when I talk about being creative, it really, it also translates to say making a mess. Yay! So I, I just, I just worry that people think that being creative means you're doing something serious and you're doing something that you can sell and that you're doing something that people will like. It's just about making a mess. Just get in there, whatever it is, baskets, weeds, whatever. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That is wonderful. Jennifer, it's been a delight to talk with you. Uh, why don't we leave the listeners with your website and ways that they can get in touch with you, maybe see some of your artwork? Right. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our time together as well. And I can be reached through my website, which is jenniferwaldron.com. And that's W-A-L-D-R-O-N.com. And there's an email address there as well. Wonderful. Thank well, I'm you. sure people will be exploring your artwork, exploring the work that you do. And it is so intriguing to find somebody like you where you have bridged a lot of the gaps and you've connected a lot of these dots. And so it makes great sense for the left and the right brain. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Deanna.